Hello, and welcome to an exciting new edition of Bella Hoodman's Curse. As always, I am your host, Steve Sutherland, coming to you from a very terrible weather, uh, Ottawa slash Gatineau. Um, it's a little bit different for us recording today. We're all kind of recording remotely and meeting in. Uh, with me, as always, today is Julian. Julian, how you doing? Did you enjoy any of the matches this weekend? Uh, I really enjoyed Watford's victory yesterday. Uh, oh, uh, I, I thought uh, Delafeu looked uh, like one of the best players I've seen all year. Uh, I, I, thought, I thought it was fantastic, and I thought it was very good to see actually a squad such as Watford uh, continuously winning. I hope they don't get bored of... Uh, holding seventh place for the next couple of years uh, because I, I, I think I think they've got something, you know? Yeah, it would be interesting. It's 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 good to see Dale Lefeu finally showing some of the promise that a lot of people, I think, expected when he was at Barcelona. This is what the fourth club he's played for now, is it? Four or five, because he was at your Milan for a little while. He was at Everton. I think he's been at Watford twice. Yeah, and he's, he's only in his, what, early 20s, I think? Mid, I think he's a little older now, but yeah. not, he's still coming into the prime of his uh, his time. Um, we also have a special guest with us uh, today. Bridget, welcome back to uh, to The Curse. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, I know it's we've been trying to have you on for a few weeks, and I think it's just Julian and I are sometimes, well, uh, not sometimes, most of the time, probably not the, the most uh, on-time people to being being able to keep people on. So I'm going to just pass over to Julian first, because Julian, uh, if you want to get us started on our first segment here today. Well, we're, we're basically going to be doing some follow-up um, with Bridget uh, with regards to that wonderful part that she did with us on women fandom in football or women fans in football. Um, we would have liked to have her sister here. It's been a long time since I've spoken to her. Uh, but uh, this is great, and we're really happy to have you. I just have one question before we begin. And, uh, what was the, the kind of uh, reaction that you received to the pod? Did you receive any kind of feedback of sorts? Um, I kind of really general, uh, positive, supportive feedback, actually which I was grateful for because, of course, you know, nervous about striking out on our own like that. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, uh, after that pod, I, I was a bit alarmed in the sense that we thought maybe we might lose you guys uh, to having your own pod, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a really good suggestion. I really think you should go, you should go for it. I think you would be fantastic at it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, is there anything you can tell us concerning uh, uh, the pod itself? Uh, and uh, like I said, like perhaps some of the feedback and how you got into this and uh, why it was important to kind of structure it the way you did. Well, um, I mean, uh, Caitlin and I kind of wanted to just to give a, a, a broader background to the subject and look at... Um, you know where the research and the cover, like the other coverage related to women fans, was. Um, look at the factual things. Uh, but there is something that has been going around in my head for the better part of a decade that is kind of the basis of my interest in this topic, and that is that I think women, left to our own devices, will be football fans, and we will express it in a way that suits us. Now, I wouldn't ever argue that it's going to be 50-50 or that football doesn't lean towards more traditional ideas of masculinity, 
but women aren't as unusual as some might think. Yeah, that is that really raises some very very uh, interesting questions because I, I I know that you're also a big fan of the Guardian podcast, and mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago they actually addressed this issue, and uh, you know uh, spoke about the fact that 50 years ago, um, you know women's football was outlawed; it was completely outlawed. You know, mm-hmm. and there is this kind of determinism. Um, I, I would say, um, you know that that it's like football belongs to men. That to me just seems erroneous to mm-hmm. say the least. Is there anything you want to say about that? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you because I don't think there's anything that sort of biologically determines, you know, whether someone is going to be a, a football fan. I think it has more to do with societal and cultural structures that have grown up around football. That means that male fans are facilitated and female fans are hampered. So, like, I think it's just it's harder for a woman to be a fan. And it is harder for her to be recognized as a fan, so she sort of melts into the woodwork. Well, well is, is, is it like, you know, you know, women have always been fans of football. I, I mean, is it because now that they can actually cheer for women's clubs, and or you know that that uh, you know they, they used to be the, the biggest supporters uh, of, of uh, some of the um, the local clubs. I mean, if you've watched uh, this wonderful documentary on Netflix. Uh, called uh, um, Sunderland Till I Die. Oh, it's in my queue. <laughs> okay, it, it, it is. It is phenomenal. It is phenomenal, and it, and it shows that the support is not predominantly male. And you know, I mean, um, this idea that that like you know this this kind of like uh, connection between men and football, masculinity and football. I mean, this. Is there anything else you can add to that? Well. Um... I mean, as Caitlin and I talked about, there was sort of a connection in the 19th century um, between, you know, sort of the positive aspects of sportsmanship and the, the things that that you could foster in young men through football and and the sort of idea of muscular Christianity. So this was forged early on. But I mean, Caroline Dunn, whose uh, 2012 doctoral thesis that Caitlin and I quoted extensively. She has looked a little bit at the history of women within football fandom, and she found examples, like these amazing examples of reporters um, sort of in the 1890s with the same kind of surprise that you get nowadays. Oh, women are watching football. Um, and, but she found this great example that sort of puts lie to it um, from 1885, um, because uh, Preston North End had this offer that women could uh, women could attend the matches for free and they actually had to cancel it because like 2000 women showed up. So that kind of gives you an idea. There's another example from the 1880s that she found of a referee being beaten with umbrellas after a match by a group of women, some of which were carrying infants because they disagreed with calls that he, that he made now. And then Dunn sort of traces this and she says like, you know, um, after the First World War, when women had sort of more freedom to move around in the world uh, unaccompanied and they could get jobs and that sort of thing, there was a noticeable increase. And so it's just like, there's some interesting discussion of this, like people keep being surprised, oh, women are women are watching football, women are attending football matches. Um, but it's been quite a long-term thing. Um, 
I mean, but, but, but as I said, people continue to be surprised. Like there was one example where a group of 40 uh, women fans from Norway, this was in 2014, uh, sort of made a trip together to see Liverpool play. And, and, and the website had these, these headlines about, oh, well, the cheers are going to be slightly higher pitched. But I mean, I'm thinking Anfield has a capacity of 54,000. I don't know how loud these Norwegian women were. But anyways, that's an aside. I guess what I'm trying to say is that women have always been interested and have actually been attending matches from the very beginning of the professional game. Yeah, uh, this, this, this is uh, another one of these discussions that I usually refer to as the people's history of, of football or the people's history of something. These mm-hmm. blind spots, you know, like as if that, uh, you know, this is the way it always was and, and always has been. But the fact of the matter is, you know, like, Women have been integral to the sport uh, in, in its development from the get-go, and uh, it's just that it's a blind spot, and it's mm-hmm. always been, you know, secondary to men. And you know, my, my, my take on this is that now that we see uh, burgeoning professional leagues, and actually where the quality of football is phenomenal, okay, um, you know, it's becoming it's it's becoming a competitive, and it's going to challenge. Uh, a lot of the kind of old school mentality mm-hmm. that still exists around this game, and it's going to be interesting to see that how that plays out. I mean, because you know, the question is: is is it harder to be, you know, a, a fan uh, uh, as a woman? And not only that, like, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about too, and maybe you can comment on this. I also noticed that there's a. a uh, an increase, a sharp increase in the amount of women pundits in football. And uh, it's actually kind of interesting in the sense that um, they seem to be all good. <laughs> uh, the one that comes to mind is Amy Lawrence from Arsenal. Uh, she's a big Arsenal supporter, but she also seems to be, you know, she's, she's quite uh, uh, equitable and objective in her analysis. I mean, does this... Are we, are we going to see an evening out, or is it just going to be the same old, same old, where women take a backseat to men in this sport? Well, I really hope there's going to be, especially with when it comes to pundits, I really hope there's going to be an evening out, because I, I do think that um, women are going to see things differently and, and bring not just a different voice, but there's going to be a complexity to the analysis. That's just my personal opinion. I'm hoping there's going to be more. Um, I think... I mean, when you say that they they're good they're good pundits and they know what they're talking about, I do wonder a little bit because I, or I do wonder a little bit if that's because like um, it makes me wonder because women do have to work hard. When you, and when Kate, Caitlin and I were talking about sort of the actual adversity that female fans face, you know, the atmosphere, the attitudes, and that sort of terrible percentage of women who received unwanted physical contact at matches. Um, as reported by Fiona McGee in the Fans for Diversity report, I mean, there's that that adversity that women face. Um, but a lot of women, you know, we when we're growing up, we're not automatically we're not automatically given access to this thing these things the way that boys would be. So, like in a hypothetical situation, say, you know, an adult woman suddenly she goes to a match just on the app, you know, just some interest. She goes to a match with some friends and suddenly she's gripped by this fever. And maybe she doesn't even know how many people are supposed to be on the field. She's an adult woman starting at ground zero. Now a six year old boy can ask those questions safely because, you know, why is that happening? What's happening there? And he's not going to get made fun of like, Oh, you don't understand offside because he's supposed to want to know. And his mentors 
want to be the ones to tell him. But this woman isn't going to have that same access. I mean, growing up, maybe her brother would get uh, notebooks and T-shirts and posters that, that were related to sports, but hers would have ballet slippers and kittens or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's like there is there's just, you know, these, these sort of cultural structural reasons why, a, you know, why she is sort of a couple paces behind at the starting line. And so that, to me, says that if a woman is going to be a visible supporter of a team or she's going to put herself forward, I almost want to treat her as automatically an expert because she's had to, she's had to, um, she's had to fight against so much more in order to get there. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I just find this actually a very, very keen observation. It is one of those things that most people don't see and they take for granted. But I would like to add that uh, nobody knows what the offside rule is anymore. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure anybody really knows anymore. Um, I, 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 uh, I wanted to ask uh, if Steve had anything that he wanted to add here at this point. So there was you brought up about how it's it is more difficult for for women to be women to be fans in like in more of a public sphere. Um, I was hoping maybe you could elaborate a little bit on maybe your personal experience in that and then maybe more of the broad research that you had you had come across. Yeah, well, okay. The the idea that this idea that uh, you know, boys are exposed to this sort of thing and girls aren't that's not original with me and I saw it in several sources and it, it I felt kind of sheepish when I came across it because it had never occurred to me even though it applied specifically to me that I hadn't grown up with this sort of thing automatically be give, being given to me because I was almost that hypothetical woman that I was talking about where I went to a match in April 2009 and I sort of casually been aware of football and I, I looked at it sort of as an academic thing, but I wasn't gripped with it until I went to see um, um, an international match at Wembley in 2009. And, it, and I was that person. I, I knew, well, I knew how many people were supposed to be on the field, but there were so many things that I didn't know. And it felt kind of precarious for me in those situations where I was like, can I ask this question? Is this person going to explain it to me? Are they going to laugh because I don't know the answer? And like one of my personal responses to this was I downloaded the FIFA manual onto my iPod so I could read it. Like it was a, it was sort of a twofold thing. So I could read it whenever I was waiting for the bus or that sort of thing and just sort of memorize it. And also so I could ostentatiously bring it out when there was a question of a call and say, look, I have the FIFA manual. I'm a proper fan. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that's my, my personal experience of that. But I mean, again, I say like I felt really silly when I read this academic. It was Catherine Swainson, actually, who said it. Um, I'm just going to quote her. Uh, as saying, quote, knowledge is a critical source of power for fans. So it's like, it's how you stake your claim. And I just felt so silly that it hadn't occurred to me because I'm like, oh, that was me. I have a follow-up question on this. Um, you know, in Canada, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar, for the longest time, when the World Cup was aired here, um, because they'd always do this at World Cup, I always noticed that the presenters or the broadcasters who had won the rights always felt this need to kind of explain the game mm. at a very, very rudimentary level to Canadians because, quote-unquote, Canadians didn't follow. And I always thought that to be very, very patronizing. That, you know, this is crazy. Just like, you know, just, you know, hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that, that this 
being patronizing towards women, saying, "Do you know that you know this is what happens when this happens?" You know, um, it, 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 how, how does somebody approach it without sounding like they're mansplaining? Well, I mean, that's very difficult. But I think the easiest way to start is to not laugh when we ask a question. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, and, and it's as simple as that. Like to like don't don't assume we don't know anything because genuinely I mean and I, I shouldn't speak for all women I mean I know there are there are women I know women personally who have played since they were six and they know it they know more than sort of your average person in a pub um, but you know like when you talk to someone who wants to know about these things don't treat them like they they're an idiot don't treat them like they can't know don't treat them like they don't know what's going on but you know answer the questions and sort of uh a reasonable kind of way that's what i mean that's that's i guess my personal advice based on what i would what i would want i know yeah. what you mean though about the patronizing thing because that happens i mean that does happen no that, that that's really really interesting and a good point so um as we come to the end uh, we have like two more questions uh, um one i would like to ask is so what's all this stuff about women watching more and more well, I mean, that's an interesting thing because it is something that it, it seems like that's that's kind of a late Victorian headline that's just getting recycled because, you know, those reports that I was I was referencing that I think it was Caroline Dunn had uncovered. I mean, they were they were shocked that women behaved this way and they were shocked that women did this. And it's like people are still saying, oh, more and more women are watching football. Um, and I, I mean, like, I mean, it's never going to be 50 50, but I wonder I've got. See, I don't really have a full answer for some for for some of these questions, but I came up with this kind of idea: like, are women being completely deterred from being fans? Have they been deterred for the reasons that we talked about, or is it that women are being fans in a way that isn't counted, so that the way that women behave as fans isn't see, isn't um, well, it isn't seen as as sort of authentic, but it also isn't being sort of categorized or calculated. And that's actually what I'm inclined to believe. Now, I kind of want to just give a little sort of personal experience that I want to share. I'm going to be a little opaque with the way I describe it, but you'll understand as I explain. Sure. So when I was sort of at the peak, absolute most obsessed with football in my life, the vast majority of female fans I interacted with, I only knew by their usernames on the internet. And I remember this one incident where a woman posted explicitly warning the rest of us to use different usernames if we were going to join any of the official forums. Because she'd apparently had, she didn't go into too much detail, but she'd had a horrific experience where a bunch of dudes searched her username and then sort of made her life hell. And the reason I bring this up is because I want to say, I want to illustrate that there's sort of a level of secrecy to it that highlights why standard measurements of fandom aren't probably going to work when you try and determine if women are watching more football. So like if you have a group of fans who are actively trying to remain hidden, there's no way they're going to show up on the standard metrics at like how many people have walked through the gates or how many people are buying shirts or that sort of thing. And also I recognize that this is only the anecdotal evidence of one person and I don't know how much it applies across the board. And I'm not going to be more specific because I don't know if that's, particular forum is still functioning and I don't want to draw attention to it because of what I know has happened. Um, also, if anyone listening has the means of finding me a grant to do actual proper research on this, please get in, please do get in touch. But um, anyways, uh, but, um, there is research to back me up that this idea that um, 
women are not being fans are not being not being counted as proper fans it's not that um we're not fans it's that we don't fit this particular model and so like for example um i guess sycamore which is one of the sources that i cited um in kate in my podcast um is a group of people who were doing a master's project at an institution that actually has official ties with fifa they found compelling arguments that women football fans have been consistently uh quote excluded or invisibilized and they're quoting another source so invisibilized the idea of that is sort of consistent throughout a lot of the sources and so the idea that women are invisible i mean we don't actually have to hide in order to be invisible there is, of course, people who don't want to draw attention to themselves, but even when they're openly supporting a team, they're not going to count the same way that other fans are going to. So um, there's a couple of sources I'm just going to rattle off here. So um, Anne Coddington wrote an article, and I didn't write down the title of it. Anyways, but she said that in history... Um, Okay, women have been a constant in terms of supporting football, but in, quote, a history written by men for men, the contribution of these women has gone more or less unnoticed. So she's arguing that women have all been there, uh, have all been part of it, um, but the histories are overlooking them because they're not important. I mean, and that's the sort of thing you see in lots of histories. It's not just sport, that women's contribution is like, oh, well, it's not as, it's, it's not as um, prominent. Um, and Caroline Dunn, whose uh, doctoral thesis I, I, I quoted several times, in her introduction she talks about um, her MA research, which was in English literature, where she looked at sports autobiography. And she also argued that she found that football history is written primarily by men for a male audience. And so, you know, she was analyzing these from a literary perspective, and that was her conclusion. And so uh, Sycamore and, and that group... Uh, take all this information and they and they, they sort of pull it into sort of our contemporary time period and say that if women have not been a part and we can pretend that they aren't a part, then we can dismiss women in the present. So the erasure of women fans um, throughout the sort of history means gives license to erasing it at present. So it's sort of a systemic marginalization, I guess, that doesn't reflect the actual events. This, this is gold because... Um I think far too often our analysis of uh, women fandom or the involvement of women in football, we put the cart before the horse. Mm. And I think what you're examining here is kind of like the most important structural underpinnings that surrounds this, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to refer to it as a burgeoning phenomenon. And I know that's incorrect. Uh, I'm just happy that it is burgeoning. <laughs> but I mean, something that's always been there, but it's just kind of like never really been seen. You know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a, a UFO that lands and only five or six people have seen it, you know, and take off. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I just have one last question before we wrap up here. Um, and I'm just going to ask about predictions, but I know you don't make predictions, but I'm not talking about predictions in the sense of countries and who's going to win. I'm actually talking in terms of what do you think the outcomes are going to be concerning this World Cup? Because I just want to add a caveat here. I believe that this is going to be a, an incredible World Cup. I think in terms of entertainment, I think in terms of the quality, I mean, there's 24 teams. I think this is going to rank as not only maybe the best Women's World Cup, but perhaps one of the best World Cups ever. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm being optimistic here, of course, 
But my question is, what do you think are going to be the kind of like socio-political, socio-cultural outcomes of this World Cup that's going to be held in France this summer? Well, okay, socio-political, I'm more comfortable on that on that territory. <laughs> um, but I don't know if I'm qualified to comment on this um, in the sense that I, I mean, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the women's teams as I am with the men's teams. And I know that that is a flaw in the way that I'm looking at these issues. Um, it's a flaw in the way I'm dealing to, dealing with this whole, this whole thing. Um, I think the socio-political stuff, I think it's really dependent on the way we choose to represent it. It's really dependent on the investment in the coverage because one of the th things that I've been noticing watching the women's super league, which I know it's not the same kind of, uh, it's not the same kind of competition, but watching the women's super league and watching where they play and hearing commentary about things like, um, Oh, and she's decided to, you know, continue her studies because she's learning to be, she's studying to be a teacher at the same time she's playing professionally. I mean, like there isn't the same priority on it. And so if we choose with the Women's World Cup to give it the same kind of coverage, it will improve the situation for women in relation to football across the board, I think. Because if we invest more in it, then it's just going to get better and better and better. The situation is going to get better. But if we choose to hold on to uh, sort of antiquated ideas, then that's, that's actually going to be what affects it. Well, my hope is that um, women's football takes the world by storm. I think that's a good hope. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, 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 I believe, um, you know, it, it's going to be a while before it's tarnished by the commercialization and commodification that we see in uh, the men's side of the sport. And I still think, you know, uh, people will play because of the sport. You know, mm -hmm. it's the sport that matters, right? Like a craft, so to speak. Uh, anyways, uh, Steve, anything you want to kind of add here? or No, I think that, that covers it for me. I think that was really great analysis Bridget I really appreciate you joining us um, and being patient with us so we could find a time to, to have you have you back on um, can, I, I hope your Atletico uh, continues to beat Juve in the Champions League um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Me too, me too. so we'll we'll definitely give you that I uh, you know I, I can't say the same for my hope for Liverpool so but, I understand. We've got a, a what is it, a gentleman's rivalry? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But again, thank you so much for for coming uh, coming back on and joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. No, the pleasure was ours, and we hope to be hearing from you very soon. Oh, I gladly. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, Julian and I are going to jump into the leagues around Europe to give you kind of an update on, uh, on what's been going on. All right, and we are back. We're going to jump right into our European leagues in focus, starting with uh, Syria, or as I like to refer to it, as Juventus and everybody else. Um, <laughs> Nothing. Nothing really changed. Uh, it seems uh, 
uh, across Syria. Like, uh, you know, uh, Milan, only a point back of Inter, although Inter with the game in hand in third and fourth. Roma starting to maybe turn the corner. Um, but I'm a little bit disappointed there, Steve. I'm a little bit disappointed. My Milan has been in, in incredible form the last uh, uh, month or so. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know that they're still in that mediocre spot, fourth place. And that is very, very, very precarious that they can fall from fourth place to sixth, maybe even seventh in a very, very short time. Um, however, they have been playing marvelous football. Well, and, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think we've both said the the injection of two players has uh, seems to have just absolutely turned this team around, right? With Piatic and and Paqueta coming into the team, uh, uh, they look completely different. Yeah, I, I mean, they, in my opinion, and I think we said this the last time we did a review. I believe that they are actually finally demonstrating the potential that they actually have. And I actually would think that to to be, you know, if I have to be fair, I don't really believe that they should have been demonstrating this kind of caliber throughout the year. And they probably would be maybe even in second place at this point. However, you know, this has been another mediocre year. And, you know, the objective is to gain that spot in the Champions League so that the, 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 the building process can, can continue. I think it's achievable. I, I, I really would like to see them finish third place so they don't have to play the qualifying match. But, you know, I mean, that that's that's going to be that's, – that will remain to be seen as, you know, injuries ahead, Roma and Lazio breathing down their necks. So the, the other thing I just wanted to make a quick note about is how fast Atalanta has fallen. You know, they basically went from fourth to eighth place in two weeks. Well, and you, you look at how crowded the the table is, right? And it, it you can it very easily that that type of thing can happen at at this point in the season. I actually wanted to talk about it about Inter. So we haven't really talked about the Europa League, and I don't think we're going to really get into it. But I did want to say so the the next round of the Europa League's been drawn. Inter has actually drawn Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, based on how Inter is playing right now. Um, I don't think they they can get through them. Well, I mean, it's going to be a difficult match. That that that's clear. Whether they get through them or, or not, the match has to be played. And uh, Inter definitely has the quality, but there there is a lot of turmoil in that club right now. And uh, I mean, there's no grown ups running the show there, uh, aside aside from Marotta. Um, and uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that you know I pegged them to be a real force this year. They seem to have really disappointed uh, uh, a lot of a lot of people, particularly their fans. This Europa Club uh, uh, is going to be very important to them, so I, I would not really underestimate Inter's performance there. Uh, this is going to be a trophy that they are going to really work hard towards winning. Um, whether they can put all the big soap opera, and I say soap operas, I should say, aside, is going to be another matter. Yeah, uh, I totally think. And they've got Fiorentina today, uh, later this afternoon, which is not going to be an easy match for them. Uh, you know, Fiorentina has also been a, a club that's been in incredible form the last few weeks. Uh, Italian football, this is real sad uh, that, you know, you have Juventus with 69, and then the next team was 53, and then after that, the next team with 46. 
because essentially the you know the, the football being played between position three and I would say thirteen has been phenomenally good football. Uh, I, yesterday's match between Frosinone and Roma was a clear example of that. Um, you can see that that uh, Roma was completely rattled by this very very provincial side that is going to be relegated. But the fact of the matter is, is the quality of football has risen substantially in Italy. And you just have this mega mega giant Juventus that basically usurps everything, and I think that that that's real sad for the league. And, and I hope I hope that there'll be some parity in the near future because the football that is coming out of Italy right now, uh, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen this kind of caliber. Absolutely. Uh, um, moving on to La Liga, um, aka Messi. I'm going to call it Messi Liga from now on. Like, let's be. Let's be very real here. The the hat trick yesterday and and the assist to Suarez to to come back against the Sevilla side that uh, had been close to them for most of the season, but is really slipping. Um, it can I ask you this question pretty much every week? Um, can there be really any debate at this point? Like there, Messi has to probably be the greatest player to have ever played the game. Well, you kind of cut out there for a bit, it's a bit there, Steve. But what I gathered from your, from what I heard, is I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I watched uh, the highlights or the extended highlights of yesterday's match between Sevilla, and the goals that he scored were the goals that you would have seen when he was like in his twenties. And you know, this this is perhaps maybe you know the last turn of his you know, i mean the last quarter of his career and yet the guy consistently proves to be the game changer not only the game changer but he also shows a kind of coolness that rarely rarely do you ever see in this game you know i mean like little chips beautiful passes volleys it was an incredible performance yesterday Absolutely. Um, now you've been a little bit. It's kind of weird to say this, but I, I have to. You've been a little bit high on Real Madrid uh, over the past few weeks. Um, yes, I have. Last week they had a bit of a a bit of a takedown against. Uh, well, they lost to Girona. Uh, Sergio Ramos, twenty five red cards, most red cards in the in the history of La Liga, actually, um, and. In a in a recent interview, he blamed it on uh, online bullying. I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, he should shut up. Uh, you know, you know, my dad always says the greatest things about this kind of footballer, and it always comes down to if you live by the sword, be prepared to die by it. Okay, and uh, you know. In this Trumpian world, you know, people make up their own realities and they make up their own facts. And I think that's that's kind of another example of it. I mean, uh, he actually, I, I gotta say, I, I, he's had an awful season. But the last few matches, he's actually saved Real Madrid. I think in the Ajax match, which at some point we're going to talk about in the Champions League, if it wasn't for him, uh, you know, I watched a good chunk of that match. If it wasn't for him. I really believe that Ajax would have run roughshod over them and probably might have got the winning result. Um, 
He also did the same in in the in, in the last loss that that, that basically I, I think that he had. I'm sorry, it escapes me. Was it? No, it wasn't Girona. It was the, the game before Girona that they lost? Did, um, Let me go back here. I, I'm I'm looking. I'm trying to look at look at myself uh, right now. I'm not seeing it, but that's okay. We can. Uh, we can yeah, it's all right. They, 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 um, again, you know, it could have been much worse. Um, they have talent. They seem to be playing a very kind of structural, functionalist kind of football based on a four-four-two. Uh, you know, the Madrid fans are not happy with this, um, and um, for a good reason. But I don't think, to be honest with you, that. Real Madrid uh, should be counted out in any of these competitions uh, at all. I mean, even in, even in La, La Liga, uh, they have 45 points. Uh, and, you know, uh, they have a game in hand. If they win the game in hand, that brings them to 48. And Barcelona is 57. Now, I know that's nine points. It's three games or three matches. But the way Barcelona has been playing and, you know, the kind of pushing that they've been getting from the rest of the league, it, like, it would not surprise me if this if this championship went down to the final weeks. Um, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they also fell off the map. I, I think you count out Real Madrid at your own peril. Yep. Uh, last uh, kind of point that I'd like to make about La Liga before before I kind of pass you the torch on anything. Uh, Hatafe moves into, uh, into the fourth place spot uh, into the Champions League positions. Um, Ahead of Sevilla and Alibes, who has seemed to have dropped off now, but will will most definitely be safe come the end of the season. Uh, Hatafe with actually, I'm looking at their matches, some excellent results recently. Yeah, something. I mean, Madrid's other teams, you know, uh, is really surprising that that they actually moved up. But what is more surprising, although we kind of said this, both you and I, you know, is how Sevilla has dropped. And they've dropped to fifth place, and they do not look solid. Although they, they dismantled Lazio in the Europa Cup, they also seem to be very, very weak in terms of, you know, holding on to leads. I mean, they seem to be able to score, but they just can't seem to kind of, like, finish the job. And also, I think another another thing that needs to be mentioned is this league is how poorly Valencia was doing. And now they find themselves in eighth place. Now, I'm sure Valencia would like to find themselves up higher. But considering where they were for the most part of the season, they were actually really in real big trouble. Now, they're ahead of uh, Betis on goal difference. And Bilbao was actually moved back up out of that kind of, you know, bottom 10 spot. So I actually think that we're going to see, you know, the, the final 14 matches of this of this championship. Um, I, th- I think you're going to see a a lot of interesting results. Uh, a lot of people are, I mean, I, there's going to be a lot of volatility in this league. I, I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You look at Valencia's record with the 15, 15 draws. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Can you imagine if they just win half of those? That's 21 points. That gives them 54. That puts them ahead of Atletico Madrid. Mm-hmm. You know? And and like you look at you look at the players that are in that team, like it would not be surprising for them to be be in that type of position. There's some serious underachieving, would you not say? Uh, possibly. I haven't. I like. I, I can't say for sure. I haven't watched um, many of their matches to see what maybe the the issues um, 
the issues have been. Now, Valencia also like they they knocked they just knocked Celtic out of uh, out of the Europa League. Although Scottish football has not uh, has not really been on the up for for a fair amount of years. So, well, I mean, let's be honest though. Okay, uh, on the one hand, uh, you know that is the Scottish champion, and they should be making short work of Valencia. Or, or is it that maybe we're seeing the improvement that, that we're talking about in Valencia as a squad? You know what I mean? Well, quite possibly, but they, they still would have had to get through to that to that stage, right? And they did win their, their qualifying group in the Europa League. So it could have just been a case of underperforming in the league and performing a little bit better in Europe. Well... I actually think when it comes down to the final eight of the Europa League, we're going to see a fantastic tournament. I know we're not speaking about it today, but I think we're going to see some extraordinary clubs in that final eight. And I think that when it gets down to it, we're going to see some real good football there. Yep. I, uh, I would, I would very much agree with you on, on that one. Um, moving on to the Bundesliga, nothing really of, uh, of note here, uh, Bayern level with Dortmund on points right now, although Dortmund has the game in hand. Uh, been a lot of uh, issues actually coming out of the uh, Bayern Munich change room recently. Um, a lot of players complaining that they're not getting time on the pitch and they're not happy with Nico Kovac. And I know you're a bit of a fan of Kovac as a coach. Oh. Oh. Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't, I'd have to, I, I would have to kind of give you a bit of a challenge there that there wasn't much to talk about in, in the Bundesliga. I, I think that um, Byron catching Dortmund is very significant. Even though Dortmund has a game in hand as we speak, um, I think that that is a very, very significant development. I think that Dortmund, um, even though they're, they, I mean, you and I have, have agreed they have played some of the greatest football. They have the best fans. They have a club structure and the kind of football that they play everything about them is appealing however you know i think that this is where the youth and the inexperience are going to catch them and i and i do think that the buyer as much as i am loath to say this i think Bayern are going to win the championship now going back to what you said i am a big fan of kovac i think kovac is a smart coach i think kovac basically does not know how to handle uh Big egos, and I think that that's that's always been Byron's problem. I mean, we know that they've always been referred to as FC Hollywood, and I mean, just take a look at the players that they've got. You know, uh, Rivery, uh, our, our 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 lovable friend there, Robin. Okay, um, these are people who are not easy individuals to deal with. I think, and you know, I think at the end of the day, Kovac has to get props for the fact that Byron is going to probably, you know, uh, get past uh, Dortmund and that they might actually be able to kind of get past Liverpool come next week. It wouldn't surprise me based on how Liverpool's playing, but we'll get a little bit more into the Champions League uh, later on in the show, for sure. Um, just a heads up, Dortmund is beating Bayer Leverkusen right now, 3-2 in the 91st minute of, uh, of their match. Win. So. And uh, I just uh, big props to Munching Gladbach. If they finish third place this year, that'll be a, a, a triumph for this very small club. 
and uh, you know, actually a story club. I, 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 I'm, I'm pulling for them, pulling very hard for them. Now I know we normally do our leads, our leads watch when we talk about the Premiership. Uh, I'm going to do my FC St. Pauli watch um, because we're talking about the Bundesliga. St. Pauli won this weekend, uh, puts them in fourth place. They won one nil over Ingolstadt, puts them uh, one point out of the promotion uh, positions. Um, so things are looking good. They might actually make their, or even have just the opportunity to come up into the Bundesliga next year. Well, yeah, well, you know, it, it, this is, I think, where some of the best football is being played these days, you know? Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Um, but before we go to break, actually, Julian, anything going around uh, Europe, South America that you wanted to comment on before we go? Well, there is uh, just two little things. The first thing I wanted to talk about, and I'll be as brief as I possibly can, is uh, Racine Club from uh, uh, La La in uh, Buenos Aires is still hanging on to first place. They uh, laid a good thumping on Godoy Cruz and uh, they reclaimed the top spot uh, uh, in, in the Argentinian championship. And uh, I would really like to see this club win this championship. They seem to be doing all things right in a football nation right now that seems to be doing all things wrong. And uh, they, they seem to be kind of like producing a very, very high quality football, along with at the same time, some very, very good, um, you know, and responsible financial kind of uh, uh, procurement of the club. And I really hope they win, uh, not only for our good friend Carlos uh, Carillo, uh, but uh, I also think that, uh, you know, uh, for, for the good of football. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is Jonathan Wilson, uh, who is one of my favorite football journalists, writers, whatever you want to call him. I actually think he's, he's kind of more of a chronicle and historian. Has uh, just uh, put out a fantastic piece in The Guardian. And I am planning, I'm just posting it right now on uh, our Facebook group. And it's basically titled, Is Defending Making a Comeback After, after the Gung-Ho Attacking Years? And I really think that everybody who is a football fan should take a nice long read of this article. It is fantastic. But uh, as of that, I really have not much more. I mean, French League, what can we say? The, the Portuguese League, I mean, not much really to report in terms of anything that's kind of like upset the apple cart, so to speak, you know? So that's it for me. All right. So when we come back, we're going to jump into uh, two different Champions Leagues as the as uh, as the knockout stages of the European Champions League start back up uh, over the past couple weeks, and the CONCACAF Champions League returns with possibly one of the most terrible performances uh, in TFC's history. All right, time for some Champions League action. Uh, Julian, I know this is your favorite league in the world to talk about, so uh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you start. So we've got Real Madrid and Ajax um, and Dortmund and Tottenham, Tottenham not, not this coming Tuesday, but the, the Tuesday after. Real Madrid versus Ajax. I just want to – we discussed this match because I think we both tried to watch a fair amount of it. Um, VAR. 
We always come back to our lovely discussion on VAR and whether or not it is useful or not. Um, this was, the, I think, one of the worst uses of it. I think they made an absolute mistake. I think Ajax's goal should have stood in the first half. What were your thoughts? I'm going to be very, very quick about this. I do not believe that the with VAR, there is going to have to be a redefinition of the offside penalty. That's my prediction. Because this idea that a toe or a shoulder behind the defender and you're offside, to me, is absolutely rubbish. End of story. Yeah, so it's supposed to be any ball-playing part of your body cannot be beyond the last defender. And I, and listen, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, even if your leg is outstretched to receive a pass and it's beyond the defender, I still don't. I still think that as long as the body, in one proportion or another, is parallel with the last defender, the player is not offside. And I'm sorry, that's the way I see it. Anything out, outside of that, I think, is absolutely rubbish. And I think that they're just asking for trouble. I think what we're seeing is, is uh, in many ways, another kind of crisis that will develop in the game of football if they don't address it soon. And what I mean by this is I mean that they're creating a level of cynicism with referees that will basically serve to only, uh, you know, uh, create more ridiculous polemics and freakouts and anger. I mean, this isn't, you know, I want to go back a couple of weeks ago on the Golato pod with uh, Richardson, Horncastle, and uh, Gabriel Marcotti. They talked about Luciano Mochi, and they talked about the relationship with the referees under the Calciopoli um, uh, scandal. That is real, real Max, fi Max Fitch fixing. Sorry, sorry, match fixing. Um, and what we see here, this isn't a question of incompetence. This isn't a question of professionals not being able to do the job. This is the speed of the game, okay? And referees have always been scapegoated for decisions. I've been guilty of it, but I've tried in recent years to realize that this is just the way the game is. I mean, there are times where I've actually put my hands on my head and said, my God, this is a criminal decision. However, I think that what has to happen is there has to be a redefinition, particularly of the rule of the offside. And if they don't do it now, they're going to find themselves with one scandal after another. And, uh, you know, the rule, the offside rule, has never been an absolute throughout the history of football. It's always been changed from time to time. So, you know, this is evolution. This is how these things take place. I think that's fair. In terms of, so Real Madrid goes home with a 2-1 with a aggregate. I don't want to get into the away goals rule. I think I think that's a there's another time and place for that that discussion. Um, but they go home with a, with two away goals. Um, do, does Ajax have a chance in the in the second leg? Well, this is the the Bernabeu, and uh, you know um, Real Madrid that's their fortress. So if you're gonna have to go and pass history, you're gonna have to kind of give Real Madrid a bit of a. Uh, an edge in that regard. However, if Real Madrid continues to play football the way that they have the last two weeks, they're going to find themselves embarrassed in their own building. Um, that could possibly happen. I think Ajax have the enthusiasm and the players to do this. 
But this is Real Madrid, and this is the Bernabeu, and the expectations are high. And I do believe, you know, this isn't a team that is not filled with lousy players. They're just playing lousy. And I think that they'll probably rise to the occasion. They seem to rise to the occasion of the Champions League all the time. So I, I, I'm going to have to go, you know, with the logical thinking of it. I'm going to take Real Madrid on this. Although I will be cheering for Ajax. Yeah, and I think I think we both will. Uh, Dortmund and Tottenham. Tottenham uh, has a 3-0, uh, won 3-0 at Wembley, which I don't think a lot of people expected considering the injury uh, crisis that they were facing. And, and and how well Dortmund's been playing. Could it just be that Dortmund has maybe decided that uh, the league title is more important than the Champions League at this point? I think that's, that, that's part of the answer. I think what happened there is that they got behind early. Uh, I'm sorry, not early. When they got behind, they panicked. Um, they didn't kind of play a match that says, okay, we're down one nothing. Let's just keep this at one nothing. If you, if you managed to see any of the highlights or actually see the match itself, you would have noticed that Dortmund kept pressing and pressing and pressing, and Tottenham was quite easily and happily to exploit that, and that's why they ended up with three goals. So I, I, I'm not quite sure why they did that. Uh, I think that they probably you know, decided, hey, if we're going to be in this, we might as well go for the gusto as opposed to kind of like just play a very conservative game. But I think that had they kind of like just stepped back, I think that the result might have stayed one nothing, and that would have kind of put them in a good spot. Um, I actually, too, was surprised, but I'm also not surprised because I think uh, Tottenham, I'm going to be honest with you, um, they're the team, I, I'm not saying they're the favorites, but they're the team that I'm cheering to win the Champions League game for. Because, you know, I, I, I want to see uh, Pochettino vindicated. Uh, I think he is probably one of the most sharpest and I'd say best coaches in the world right now. He's a, he's a player's coach. And I would like this uh, to end up in his hands so he can turn around and give Tottenham's uh, chair and their uh, board a big F you and uh, give the, uh, the rest of the world a big F you because, you know, that's been the rub against them. This kind of tyrannical tyrannical logic that he hasn't won anything so he's he's lousy which I think is bullshit but nonetheless I was actually surprised I didn't expect him to win 3-0 uh, Porto and Roma Roma leading on aggregate 2-1 but going to Porto if Roma plays the way that they did yesterday against Frozenone Roma is done Anything like that's it? You just think that's, that's it? That's it. Okay. Um, PSG Man United going to the Parc de Prince with PSG up two nil. Man United looks like they're in a bit of an injury crisis at the moment. Uh, listen, a couple of things here. Um, no shame in losing to PSG. Uh, that that PSG that they played uh, a couple of weeks or what is it now on the twelfth that they played yeah almost two weeks ago. No shame in losing to that squad. That, that was a fantastic performance by PSG. Uh, and, and not to say that Man United played lousy, because they didn't play badly either. They played a very good match. They just met a team that kind of met its potential. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is, this is PSG. Strange things have happened with this club. Okay, I mean, remember, Barcelona. So, you know, and it is two goals. Okay, you've got the two away goals. And we know how we feel about this away goals nonsense. But... You know, I, I would not count out Man United until the sword has been put to them. And I could see, 
you know, them going in there with a kind of like, you know, shoot from the hip attitude with really nothing to lose and everything to win. And PSG, we know that when when the pressure comes to them, they seem to freeze. So, you know, again, I would say, even though they're up 2 nothing and the two away goals, the pressure's on PSG, not Man United. So, you know, I, I, I expect a good match here. Uh, Man City up 3-2 on Schalke, headed home. Um, bit of a surprise result, considering the uh, the red card that Otamendi took uh, in the in the first leg um, with City down, but City came through and scored goals. Um, more, I think it's more indicative of Schalke's overall form this season and not so much City's form. But when you go down a man and are still able to score goals, um, speaks to the character of the team. Yeah. Uh... When I was following this match, I, I didn't watch this match, but I followed this match on uh, the minute-by-minute minute report that usually comes with live score. And uh, whew, I thought, what's going on? What What's going on? And I, 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 I didn't expect Schalke to get anything out of this, and yet they managed to put two past them. Um, I think that Man City steadied the ship, and I do not see them... I mean, again, anything can happen, right? I mean, these are men against men, and, you know, they're human beings against human beings, and anything can happen. But I would definitely have to give Man City the edge to go through, especially when you've got three away goals. Yeah. I mean, unless some kind of crazy alignment of the stars happens, I don't see Schalke kind of overturning this result. Yep. Uh, Atletico headed to uh, Turin to take on Juve. Up 2-0. Probably should be... More than 2-0, but again, VAR made some mistakes uh, in, in this situation as well. But a, a well-deserved 2-0 to Atletico uh, dude, in that match. Dude, I'm telling you something. Uh, how do I say this? Uh, I feel vindicated, and I feel so happy about this. Uh, there is so much that I, I would like to see. I would like a blue flame to come out of my mouth, but we don't want to get that... Um, that uh, uh, what, what, you, what is it? Uh, basically, uh, the uh, the warning that we swore on our pod. So I'm just going to say a few things. I have picked Juventus to win this Champions League since the beginning. Okay, but I did say that if there was any team that was going to stop Juventus, it was going to be Atletico Madrid. Okay, and I think that two nothing is a very, very, very difficult result to overturn. I don't think it's impossible, especially with Juventus going home, back home to Torino. That stadium is going to be a madhouse, and you know that Juventus is going to put pressure on them uh, uh, hard. And if they get an early goal, anything can happen. However, Cholo proves from time to time and time out that he is gets his players up for these games. Uh, from what I understand, out of the last 13 games, he has had, what, 12 clean sheets? Okay, and uh, you know, this is karma, and karma is a bitch for all you Juventus fans, isn't it? Right. So I really, really hope that I see Atletico go through. And I mean, wow, what a failure of a season this would be for Juventus if they don't win this match. Yep. Uh, two things I wanted to ask you about. So first of all, Cholo's celebration after the first goal. Beautiful. Um. Very unsportsmanlike. You know, under any other circumstances, I would have said tasteless, 
classless and really grow up. Yeah. But you know what? This is Juventus. Yep. Okay. So then, and, on the on the flip side of that. On the flip side of that, you have Ronaldo with uh, after after the match. You know, I've won it five times. You haven't won it at all. Well, you know, what have you and I said always about this sport? It's not about what you did in the past. It's what you've done for me lately. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really, I mean, you know, Ronaldo needs a really good press agent. You know, a good uh, Ronaldo really needs uh, uh, you know somebody who's basically going to take care of his kind of uh, you know uh, what do they call those people in in, in Hollywood that uh, actors have um, you know they're not press agents but uh, uh, I would publicity. say yeah pub- a pl- yeah he, he's yeah. going to probably need a good lawyer at the same time but that's, that's... Uh, no, well that's another matter. And, uh, I mean, uh, it's actually an important matter, and we shouldn't overlook it. But, you know, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, from time to time, I mean, look, he's a tremendous player. He just doesn't know how to control himself. I mean, really, show some class, shut up, you know, prove it on the pitch in the next match, which I probably think he might, you know. It's quite possible. So the last two matches, I'm going to kind of bundle them. Before we go on to the last two matches, I just want to say, do not count Juventus out, okay? Juventus is like a, a multi-headed hydra. You cut off one head, you've got two more to deal with, okay? Or one grows back. So, I mean, this, until the sword is put through their heart, do not count Juventus out. Um, I'm going to kind of bundle the other two matches because I actually didn't find really anything of note to have happened in either of them. Uh, Bayern, Liverpool, Barcelona, Leon. Did you have any comments to either of them? Because I don't. I actually found them to be quite boring. It definitely looked like the uh, the the bo- both teams played for like all four teams played for nil nil, knowing that a result uh, in in the second leg was going to be all that mattered. Well, defensive football. I, I direct you to that article by Jonathan Wilson. Uh, is defending making a comeback? But I did say to you, I sent you a note, I think, just before the game. I said, Barcelona's going to suffer against Lyon. And I know you've been a big supporter of Lyon. Lyon has beaten uh, Manchester City twice. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Lyon, you know, walks away with an upset here. Um, The other game, these two teams, well, Liverpool... I mean, aside from this kind of gung-ho attacking when they're capable of it, really impresses me. And uh, But lately, for the last, I'd say, 10 to 12 weeks, I'm not seeing it. I'm yeah. really not seeing it. I, and the same with Bayern. I mean, I, I think that you're right. I think that they play right now a really kind of bland kind of football where you know it seems like some kind of spark has to take place for them to take, take hold. You know, Liverpool doesn't seem to play well with Sadio Mane disappears when Sadio Mane appears they seem to all play well Bayern is Bayern you know I mean I, I, I just can't get behind their players I can't get enthusiastic about the squad despite the fact that you know they, they, they have an assortment of probably some of the greatest players in the world right now but I, I just can't get I, I can't get excited about them even though I like Tuchel yep. uh, I think that's I think that's fair um Moving on to the CONCACAF Champions League. Some interesting results. Um, 
in also like outside of the independiente uh of panama over uh over tfc and four nil we had uh deportivo saprissa uh beating tigres one nil uh herediano of costa rica beating uh atlanta um, but and of course, the other results seem to have went in ways that uh, that were probably expected. So, my question to you is: I'm gonna. I, well, wait a minute! I, I just wanted to be in there. Uh, sporting Kansas City beating Toluca three nothing is something that everybody should basically take note of. Toluca's no slouch, you know. Uh, that that's quite a comprehensive victory. Yeah. So. My question for you is, do you think that this means not, not only the game is growing, like we, we, we talk about the game growing in North America, how strong the game has always been in Mexico, but do you think the club game might actually be growing um, just across uh, North and Central America? Well, Steve, you know, I think this is a blind spot. Uh, um, Saprisa, okay, and uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm just looking at the other team. Herediano. These are teams with a long history. Costa Rica has a long history of club football. Okay, uh, they've been around for over 75, 80 years. They've actually have a history of football. So I mean, this doesn't surprise me. Okay, it does not surprise me that as much as it surprises others. The match against Toronto FC surprises me a great deal because Toronto FC given where they given what what they should be at this point should have handled that match much easier. Losing 4-0 the way that they did, that that was an embarrassment. That was an utter embarrassment. Yeah, I I watched uh, as much of that match as I could stomach. Uh very clearly they need some type of creative talent to come into the uh come into the team. Michael Bradley looks like he should have retired two years ago, right after winning the championship. Um, they just don't look good. Nothing, nothing to me. Like for for those of you who were around when Toronto FC was absolutely terrible, and and you and I were both there when they were god awful. Uh, we were actually there in the stadium. Yeah, uh, I th I think people in Toronto need to be prepared for their team to go into. Uh, uh, a dark. They need to go. It, it's going to be a dark period. I think two or three years at minimum. Well, I mean, I'm disappointed. Uh, uh, I, I don't think Bradley should be tired. I don't think he's that bad. As a matter of fact, if anything, they should have freaking won the game. But they play terrible. They just play terrible. They just did not seem to be interested in this game at all, and they were completely taken by the enthusiasm of the other team. Hey man, you're professionals. Get yourself up for the match. Yeah. So um, we're gonna take a quick break, but before we go to break, uh, it does look like uh, Manchester City has won on penalties, uh, with Jorginho and David Luiz both missing their penalties. And from what I'm being reported, it looks like Sari and his goalkeeper are getting into a fight at the end of the game. Oh, my God. Well, too bad. Too bad. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about Maurizio Sarri further when we get into our uh, into the into the next group. So we'll take a quick break when we return the Premier League.
All right. So the Premiership uh, gave us some exciting matches this weekend. Liverpool comes back to the top of the table, albeit by one point in a lackluster draw against Manchester United. Um, let's let's start there. Why don't, why don't we start with that match? We both watched that match earlier today. Um, I I actually thought Manchester United was the better team, specifically being able to make the changes that they did after the injuries. Uh, defensively, possibly one of the best performances I've seen out of them uh, in I don't know how many years. Holding Liverpool to only one shot, uh, making Salah, uh, Firmino, uh, Shakiri, and Sané or not Sané, Mane, not Sané, uh, look completely invisible. Um, what were your thoughts? I thought it was a benign match. I thought both teams, uh, you know, I know this is two evenly matched teams, I think, actually. You know, and I kind of, uh, I mean, I, I didn't expect a, a, a bore nil-nil, but that's what we got. Uh, and I actually was impressed by, uh, I was really, really impressed by um, the intelligence of Anton Herrera at one point. Uh, and that's 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 really strange for me to say because I'm not exactly the biggest fan of him, but he he did something very intelligent at one point. Um, he, uh, he he gave a, 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 a deliberate tech, or a deliberate foul to Fabinho, and I think Fabinho would have scored had he had not done this. And he was smart enough to catch him outside the box. Uh, at the same time, I was blown away by um, by. Uh, uh, the kind of pace that both teams showed. Uh, however, though, you know, I, 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 I this I, I was, like I said, it was a kind of benign game for me. I, th- I think that's fair. Uh, Tottenham losing to uh, to Burnley, um, but still looks like they could still be in the title fight. Uh, only only six points back of Liverpool. Um, you actually disagree. It's kind of it's kind of weird. You and I have switched places here. I think Tottenham might still be in the race, and and you think they're out. I think that game against Burnley, uh, they needed that win. That was that was three points that they needed to get. And I, you know, I, I figured that at some point they were going to drop points. I figured they would drop points against one of the top five teams. Um, but that just didn't happen. So I, I I'm, I'm counting them out at this point. I actually, kind of speaking from a position of wishful thinking, I hope they actually do take the idea of taking the Champions League more seriously and, you know, trying to kind of maintain where they are. And, you know, because I, I don't think Manchester City, I think Manchester City is, is, is on a roll. To be honest with you, with Liverpool drawing today and Man City winning on penalty kicks in the Carabao Cup, uh, I believe that Man City won two trophies today. Fair enough. Uh, Arsenal moves back into fourth um, with a 2-0 win today over uh, over Southampton. Um, Southampton actually being the team that broke their undefeated streak at the, uh, at the start of the season. Um, seems like they played fairly well from, from all accounts that I've, that I've seen. Um, do do you expect them to to stay in this fight for for fourth place? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know because they seem to be inconsistent. And there's like how many matches still left? Eleven. Eleven matches left. I will say this. Okay, I, I will say this. I will say that um, that I, 
I actually think that Gunners fans should be ecstatic, totally ecstatic, that they are where they are. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think everyone probably would have expected Arsenal to to kind of be in the in the fourth place fight. Like they have a few more points than they did uh, compared at this point last season with Finger, um, but they've also surrendered more goals. Uh, so it's it's a a bitter here or there. Um, we've already talked about uh, about Manchester United. Although the only thing I would say there is the the difficulty with a lot of the injuries that uh, that they're facing right now, especially in a crucial crucial time. We're gonna have to see if Solskjaer is. Uh, I think this could actually be where Solskjaer proves his metal, right? Where but, he's going to have yeah. to use the squad now. Well, I mean, realistically. Man City on on the on the basis of the play of I mean Man United sorry on the basis of the play of the last ten to twelve games I think they deserve that fourth spot. However, there's still eleven games to be played, yep. right? Yeah. So let, 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 we we have to see what happens there, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I want to say something here first of all. I want to say something about Man United uh, game against Paris Saint Germain. All these people that kept going on and on and on about Paris Saint Germain being. Uh, um, uh, Paris Saint Germain, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I just got a little bit distracted there. Just a, a bird almost flew into the house. <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know, about, about, you know, Solskjaer not passing the test. That's rubbish. Okay. Solskjaer did fantastic. Okay. He played a very, very tough team and, uh, you know, he lost. That's, there was no shame in that at all. Just wanted to go on with that. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's fine. Uh, moving on to Chelsea, I'm going to ask you straight up. Sorry, is sorry there by the end of, and I'll give to the end of the month, like another week. Do you think he lasts oh, another week? As I'm talking to you, I'm watching this thing on Twitter. Um, this 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 unbelievable dis- uh, display of uh, this thing, Kepa. Not uh, there's a video footage of, of Kepa, the goalkeeper, refusing to go off because he wants to put in another goalkeeper for the penalty kicks. And I, I really think that, that Sarri is, is getting treated very poorly here. Um, Sarri is indeed dogmatic. He is totally dogmatic. And I understand that. And he's going to pay a price for that. And he should be judged by the fact that he has stuck to one system and that's it. But, you know, the way that they're piling it on now is just absurd. Um, you know, this guy came in uh, two weeks late. Like, he actually, Conte actually had started this, the, the, the early season training. Uh, he, you know, the kind of playing that Sarri brings to um, Chelsea and his style is you need certain players, okay? You need great players to play in the positions that he, he wants. And if he did get the, the players he wanted to, he would have the team that Chelsea would be looking for. He did not get the players he wanted to. And, you know, this whole rub against him with N'Golo Kante. N'Golo Kante is a superstar player, but he cannot play in the system that Sarri has put in. And Sarri, for better or for worse, is a very dogmatic manager. Okay? So I wanna, I'm going to make a... I wanna, I'm going to challenge you on that one. So you, you have a player who's won the Premiership twice with two different teams and has just won the World Cup uh, and actually can move the ball pretty pretty quickly. No, he can't. 
you can't, there's only two or three players that can play as a deep line, uh, uh, deep line passing midfielder, the kind that he looks. And one of them happens to be Jorginho. You're hard pressed to find guys. And Golo Kante cannot play that position. Okay. And Golo Kante won those two premierships in the World Cup in another system. Now, I'm not saying that he's a lousy player. And I'm not saying that, that sorry is right. I'm just saying for better or for worse, this is what Chelsea got. And this is what Chelsea should understand that this is what they took. Okay. Now, you know, now they're, they're upset that they're not getting it. And quite frankly, the, you know, this is going to really do it. I mean, at the end of the year, you know, judge him on his results. Take a look at when uh, Guardiola came into the league. Guardiola finished fourth, fifth place. Everybody thought, oh, you have to adapt this game and this and that. And guess what? He won last year at an incredible pace. And it looks like he's going to win again this year. Same with Klopp. Klopp didn't basically produce the results right away. They waited, and look at where they are now. Sorry demands the same kind of respect, and I don't believe he's getting it. And, uh, you know, he's going to live and die by it, and he's going to be judged by it. But at the end of the day, Sorry is a dogmatic manager. He believes in his system, and Conte has no role in that system. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I I can I, I see your point. I just uh, it, it just it's starting to feel very Mourinho esque to me. Well, it, it kind of is, but uh, the difference is, is he's not a sociopath like Mourinho is. Yeah, I, I I see your point there. It's just the the the. Like, I, are the players not respecting him? I, I would agree, absolutely, based on this showing. Um, but the the not accommodating possibly one of the best players in a position in the world uh, seems seem just seems to be a mistake. Well, I mean, accommodating in, in, in what system again? Like, if he's going to put him in the position that he plays, uh, I actually think you'll see a lot of six nothings. Okay, against top-ranked teams. Because N'Golo Kante, despite whatever great football is, he's not a quick passer and a deep-lying passer. Okay? From what I can tell, there's maybe about three players in the world that can play that position. And one of them is retired. And his name is Chuck. Yeah, but so here's but here's the opposite side of it. Jorginho can't defend. No, but that's not his point. That's not his role. The other players should be defending. And they're not doing that either. I mean, David Luiz and, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, who's the other fellow that works side stands beside him? Rudiger. Rudiger. They they have no concept of this system. And they're not very good defenders to begin with, if you ask me. Aska Pilaqueta has actually adapted quite well, okay? Uh, Alonso doesn't belong in this team. There's a lot of players that just don't belong in this team. Well, and, and now they, that they've got a now they're ban- they have a transfer ban for the next two windows. Yeah, uh, and that that that's it. That's it. So he's you know either they're stuck with him or he's going to go. And uh, I mean, this is a choice that management has to make. Yeah. But I don't think that this has got anything to do with the fact that Sarri's football is rubbish. Sarri's football, he's got a system. And I mean, if you want to take a look, take a look at some of the football that that that, that he had. Uh, um, uh, his squad playing at Napoli—they were amazing. Okay. Yep. Uh, Watford, Wolves, West Ham, and Burnhamith rounding out the top ten. Um, That's my favorite football right now. Watching those four teams play. 
Uh, yeah, I have to say West Ham playing well. Wolves, uh, Wolves playing well. Mitch, we have them in the FA Cup uh, quarterfinals, so I'm I'm looking forward to that match. It'll be a good one. I think I think uh, absolutely doing a lot of learning about Wolves. Apparently, Wolves had a very big hand in the creation of the Champions League, and that's something I wasn't uh, wasn't significantly aware of. Um, but Watford, we've already spoke about uh, earlier. Um, Everton sitting in 11th. What a disappointment. Leicester City. This is where I wanted to get to. So Claude Puel has been uh, fired from Leicester. Yeah. Uh, probably deserved. They haven't been, like, the results just haven't uh, haven't been going their way. And they lost 4-1 to uh, Crystal Palace at home yesterday. Puel is a football guy. Puel cannot seem to communicate very well with his players. That happened at Southampton. It also happened at, uh, at, at Leicester. Uh, I believe that Puel uh, playing abroad outside of France is a problem. I believe that if he goes back to France, he'll probably be rather successful. And, uh, you know, he'll uh, you know take teams as high as they possibly can uh, within that Paris Saint-Germain rubric. And uh, I think that's that's the problem. I think there, there there is a cultural and a linguistic kind of gap. And unfortunately, I, I don't think he's a shitty manager. I think he's actually an intelligent manager. Uh, I just don't think he can communicate his ideas very well. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. Um, Going to skip all the way down to the relegation battle. Um, props to Crystal Palace, man. Uh, they they look they look good get out of this battle of relegation yeah i think i think well that's what i was going to get into i think that i think the only teams from newcastle uh, so i'm going to say it now huddersfeld probably huddersfeld is being relegated um they're actually they're sitting on 11 points which is tied for derby for the lowest point total uh in the history of the premierships so they do need to pick up one point otherwise they go into the record books fulham looks like they'll be done as well so i think the the last battle is really between Newcastle, Brighton, Cardiff, and Southampton. And I think you yeah. and I would both agree that if Cardiff went down, we would be happy. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that that's going to be a dogfight. Um, the only one that I could see maybe getting out before it becomes a dogfight is Newcastle. But between yeah, Newcastle, Brighton, Cardiff, and Southampton, I think we're going to see some serious... Uh, Fulham, Fulham wrote their check the other day against West Ham. After losing the West Ham, I, I said to myself, they're out. It's too bad because it actually, for the first little bit of that match, it did look like they were going to have uh, have a chance to win it uh, at one point. Yeah, and, uh, you know, VAR would have been very useful. But I got to I gotta give props again to, uh, to Ranieri. Ranieri was pretty clear. He says, listen, he goes, you know what? He goes, we didn't win. And, uh, we, you know, uh, sure, the referee made a bad call, but we needed to win. And uh, that's taking responsibility. I'm very sad because uh, I think Ranieri, you know, his career has kind of floundered ever since uh, he kind of got chased out of, uh, out of Leicester City. I don't think it was fair to him. Um, I, I hope he finds uh, – I actually hope that, that, that Fulham see, see it uh, to stay with him while they're in the championship, but I doubt that that's going to happen. Yeah, uh, quite, quite possible. So that uh, that does it for the premiership. Was there anything else that uh, that you wanted to talk about today? 
No, not really. But uh, I mean, I think that, that, that some really interesting matches are coming up over the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll probably have uh, we have a couple of good podcasts lined up for you. Um, we have a special one. Uh, we have special ones over the next two weeks, so stay tuned. And uh, I hope everybody's enjoying their football. Yeah. Um, it looks good. We've got the Premiership is actually back on Tuesday and Wednesday uh, of this week. It's double game weeks for for everybody, so that will be that will be a lot of fun. It does look like there are some uh, some interesting matches on the table. Let me just bring those up because there were a couple that I was going to point out to everybody. Um, uh, Newcastle United versus Burnley. On, on Tuesday is a is a relegation battle still. Burnley's still kind of in it. Um, and then you've got Southampton and Fulham on Wednesday, which is a relegation one. Chelsea and, and Tottenham on, on Wednesday as well, um, which will definitely be, be a great match. Liverpool-Watford, I think, is my pick of the matches, though. Uh, you've got the Copa del Rey coming back on Wednesday as well, the second leg between Real Madrid and Barcelona. Remember that? That match is sitting at uh, at one one on aggregate right now. Um, no, no, this is when we see the wheat divided from the chaff, my friend. And uh, for those of you who were listening during the Syria portion of this, uh, Fiorentina is already up one nil on Inter five minutes in. Nice. Anything else here? Real Madrid hasn't started yet. Okay. So that does it for us here at uh, at Bella Hoodman's Curse, or as Jul- uh, well as I joke now, the Curse. Um, uh, Julian found that one pretty amusing actually earlier today. Um, so uh, thanks for listening. Remember to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, um, and if you are following us on any podcasting websites, please uh, rate us because if you put a five star rating in there. Uh, our podcast will show up for people searching for podcasts like ours. So that would be great. Uh, Anything else, Julian? No, Steve. I hope you have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. We'll talk soon. Take care.